Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm John Fusco. I'm Liz Nord. And I'm Eric Lures. It is November 29th, 2018, and on this week's show, the first awards of the season, HBO advances sex, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome back to another episode of Indie Film Weekly. Uh, we're live from Brooklyn, New York. Hello. Happy uh, Thanksgiving. Well, Thanksgiving is gone. Black Friday, <laughs> Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday, Tuesday. Wow. Wacky Wednesday. Black. I think. Is yeah. Happy boring old Thursday, everybody. Yeah. We're back. It's just Thursday again. You can shop wherever you like now. <laughs> and uh, Liz, do you have any any updates for us in in the uh, weather front? This week? Cold. No, it's good that you asked. I was up in Syracuse, New York for uh, Thanksgiving where it was in the single digits. Wow. Wow. This winter is definitely, definitely here. And I kind of froze my tush off. And Eric, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, it was good. I, I spent it with my uh, grandma in the nursing home where she is. Nice. And, uh, party the, all the time, <laughs> party all the all, time. Yeah, everyone was asleep by 6 p.m., you know? It was it was beautiful. Great. Uh, it was It was not bad. How was yours? Oh, it was very bo- not boring, but just really Red Dead Redemption. A, a lot of Red Dead Redemption. Mm. Oh my God, too much. That that's it's a great game, but it's very intense in terms of time commitment, which some of you noted on the article that I wrote the other day um, about Red Dead and Buster Scruggs. But yeah, you really have to devote some time into it, and any sort of free or creative time you have goes to Arthur Morgan. But that being said, I did write a little bit too. So it was it was a good Thanksgiving. Yeah. The article ends with John declaring cinema is dead. Yes. And video games are the future and the yes. present. Oh, no. Our readers always love that. Yeah, they, yeah. Well, you know, it was a uh, it was a divisive piece. But I think that people I didn't say that. I didn't say that that movies are better than video games. I just said that video games have the potential to like do more than uh movies. Ooh, I like it. Hot take. Hot take. Well, Anyways. it's good that we have uh, certain awards that we can give out to still honor movie going. That's a good segue, right? They, that's uh, a great segue. Thank you. Thank you. Because we can't forget about the motion picture industry, of course. Uh, last Monday was the IFP Gotham Awards, the 28th annual ceremony, which I was able to attend because it was my former employer. So it's not like any, I'm not special or anything. I have uh, to interrupt to say that's really the headline, like you're bearing the lead. You guys, Eric got I, invited I, to a party. I got invited to a party. Yeah, and it was nice. I got to hang. You know who I actually like the most? Well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Uh, Tell us all about it, Eric. Okay. Well, presented, as I said, by the Independent Filmmaker Project, uh, the Gotham Awards are now in their 28th year, and it's they're one of the preeminent and first film award shows of the season, often serving as a strong pronosticator of what's to come over the next several months, because it is several months, of film honoring. The big winner of the evening was Chloe Zhao's The Writer, which won Best Feature, and Paul Schrader's First Reformed, which won Best Actor and Best Screenplay. Tony Collette won Best Actress for Hereditary, and Eighth Grade's Bo Burnham and his leading lady, Elsie Fisher, won Breakthrough Director and Breakthrough Actor, respectively. I would say that the big night was A24. Yeah, you're right. First Reformed, Eighth Grade, Hereditary. 
they won pretty much everything. They except won for everything. F- yeah, except for feature. Except for feature. Yeah. Great lineup, though. What a great like these films all were awesome. That's true. And if you want to see these A twenty four films, get your Canopy account. Yeah. And just start watching them. They're because they're all free. Seventy two so titles on uh, seventy two A twenty four titles on Canopy right now. And wow. Canopy is if you don't know a free streaming service. All you need is a library card to one of your local libraries. Uh, you got to check on the site to see if you know it is indeed a part of the Canopy service. But I think they cover a lot of ground. Yeah, I, in think, terms so, I of, think so. It's even in Canada and I think yeah, in other parts of the yeah. of the world as well. We had a Canadian uh, reader comment that you could only watch like eight a month or yeah, something. Yeah. Uh, in Canada, I don't know if that's the same for America, but I'm definitely going to check it out. Definitely. And uh, we'll link to the full list of winners uh, in the podcast post. So as I said, I, I did attend. It was my fifth one, and it was more fun and casual than most. Uh, there was no host this year, which you don't really need for a lot of these award shows because they kind of just go and flow as they, as they do. Uh, I did get to meet Bing Lu of Minding the Gap. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I thought was really cool because I saw him in the distance looking at his phone because I don't think people were recognizing him. And I'm like, let me just approach him. And, in, you know, he's like a 25, 26-year-old uh, gentleman. And so I just started chatting with him. He was very, very kind. Um, in terms of the tributees, because they also give out tributes, uh, so I'd call them tributees, uh, they included Paul Greengrass, Willem Dafoe, and Rachel Weisz, and each had a very nice speeches, and strong presenters like Michael Sheen and Laurie Anderson presented them. That was really cool. Uh, I was in the green room slash winner's room for most of the event. What? Look who's fancy. Well, that's they didn't get, well, you could say it that way, or you could say I didn't get a table. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you can really, you know. Uh, look who didn't get to eat dinner. Yeah, exactly. It's like you could really look at that in two different ways. Uh, I bet they have some pretty swish snacks in the green room. They there, did. Though. They had like some pasta and stuff. And it's it's really like a giant library at Cipriani uh, Wall Street, the big building that it's in. Um, but the coolest things for me was like when Frank Marshall, he had presented Paul Greengrass with his tribute. He came up to the library after and we have a live feed of the show going on. And it's funny because he was so entertained slash disgusted by this shot in Hereditary because it was up for some category. And it's the one where John's favorite actor, yep. uh, my, ba- my arch nemesis, arch nemesis is banging his head up uh, on the desk and bleeding on his face. And he, Frank Marshall's like, what is that? This, you know? <laughs> um, and the other great thing was Ethan Hawke. He was in the green room, and then they were doing best feature. And so they showed a clip from First Reformed, and he started reciting his lines, <laughs> watching wow. the clip. And it was character. really – he's like, yes, I do know the hand of God or whatever the line is uh, in a restaurant scene. And it was, like, very cool just seeing him fascinated by his own performance and then, like, <laughs> re- recreating it at the same time. Um Barry Jenkins was catching up with Rachel Weisz and stuff, and it it was very cool. It was a nice nice event. I, I acted on my best behavior, and uh, award season's officially going. I'm I, impressed. I watched a little, actually watched a little bit of the live stream. Um, yeah. And I was looking for you, Eric, but no, they don't they don't put me on camera. No. <laughs> what is cool? Uh, Emma Stone and uh, Olivia Coleman could not be there, but they were all awarded an ensemble award. Yeah. And so uh, Rachel Weisz had the stick. Uh, stick heads, stick heads, uh, stick heads of with, uh, Emma Stone's like masks. Uh, kind of like a stick with like a Emma Stone's face on it, oh, and Olivia wow. Coleman on another one. She <laughs> brought them both up to the podium with her, and it, it sounds creepier than it actually was. <laughs> no, it's cute. Uh, it's kind of like a popsicle stick with a head on it, 
Uh, now I made it creepier than it was. <laughs> um, and it was pretty neat. It was pretty cool. Wait, did you wear a tux? I had a suit on. Yeah, I can show you photos later. Yeah, I don't have a tux, but I do have a tie jacket, you know. We'll definitely put those photos in the podcast. Yeah, 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 definitely. I looked like I was going to a really fancy funeral. <laughs> <laughs> so, And speaking of which. Speaking of, oh. I did not plan this. <laughs> That's the best uh, obit section segue yes. we've had all year, all time. Okay, so it, we did lose some more people this week. Um, B- British filmmaker Nicholas Rogue passed away at the age of 90. Uh, and I just wanted to mention something that Adam Naiman of The Ringer wrote about Rogue's past as an editor and a cinematographer. Quote, Rogue didn't just bend the medium of film to his will. He broke it, splintered it, and sub-sutured it back together. He was like a surgeon gifted with second sight, and his movies would have probably died on the operating table with anybody else in charge. A former cinematographer who left his mark in several different areas of 1960s cinema, doing unit work for David Lean on Lawrence of Arabia, shooting Fahrenheit 451 for Francois Truffaut, and The Mask of the Red Death for Roger Corman, Rogue had an undeniable eye for color and composition. But it was his attention to editing that made him a legend. His movies were jagged jigsaw puzzles that the viewer had to try to put together in real time. End quote. Uh, so Rogue had went on to direct British pop stars in leading roles in feature films, often their first, including David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth in 1976 and Mick Jagger in the movie Performance. Uh, Walkabout, which is this kind of crazy Australian sort of thriller, is on the Criterion Collection. And his 1990 adaptation of a Roald Dahl book, The Witches, made in collaboration with Jim Henson's production company, really terrified me as a young boy for many years. It involves witches that turn children into mice, and it's really it's really disturbing. Uh, if anyone has all seen The Witches. I have, so that is a movie that I have seen by him. Though. Okay. I thought I hadn't seen anything by him. One thing that I appreciate about, like, you know, these obituary we we've had to do so many obituaries in the past few weeks, but like it really has given me a reason to like seek out and find these filmmakers sure. and like really get um, more familiar with them. Yeah. So educational in some ways, still. definitely. And his most famous one is most likely "Don't Look Now," which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of if they have not seen, starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. They're a married couple grieving over the loss of their young daughter. And then they go to Venice, and there's there may her their daughter may still be alive, but maybe not. But they see some young person in a red coat and looks like their daughter. Who is it? Uh, the sex scene in the film between the couple was so realistic that urban legend had it that the sex scene was real between Sutherland and Christie. Although it has since been disputed by multiple sources, uh, Nicholas Rogue was still flattered by that myth, if you will. And he leaves behind his family and friends, and of course, including six children, like Nicholas Rogue Jr., who is also in Walkabout. And it's been a tough week for film lovers, as we lost another widely acclaimed director, Bernardo Bertolucci, on Monday. Bertolucci was an Italian director, but his inspiration came from the French New Wave, and he was embraced by Hollywood, too. His films didn't linger in the arthouse realm. In fact, 1987's The Last Emperor won all nine Academy Awards for which it was nominated, including Best Picture and Best Director. I saw that one when I was a little kid, and I still remember the impression some of the incredibly rich images made on me. Uh, in line with our community, Bertolucci did not go to film school, but instead he dropped out of university to assist on the films of renowned Italian director Pier Paolo Pasolini. Bertolucci went on to write and direct 25 films of his own. It's interesting that we lost Rogue and Bertolucci in the same week because there was some overlap in their approaches, and actually Eric just alluded to this in his, um, his remembrance of Rogue. 
There's a fascinating piece about this by Ryan Gibley in The Guardian, which I will share a couple lines from. Quote, their reputations, meaning the two directors' reputations, were forged at the forefront of a new kind of transgressive cinema in the 1960s and 70s, in which explicit depictions of sex and desire were driving dramatic force rather than X-rated window dressing. Sex in these films isn't gratuitous titillation, but a way of expressing character, motivation, and meaning. Now, unfortunately, I can't mention Bertolucci without bringing up a a recently revealed controversy related to this risque sexual exploration, which was an allegation that the rape in his famous film The Last Tango in Paris was an actual rape, which was not in the actress's script because the director, quote, wanted her reaction as a girl, not as an actress, end quote. But even this revelation, as part of the wider Me Too movement, has left a positive impact on the industry in some way, which brings me to one final story. HBO, the network which some of you may remember started out as basically a softcore porn channel, has made major changes in how it approaches sex scenes. It all started with The Deuce, which is not a show that's shy about sex. It's actually about the porn industry in 70s New York City. And again, there's a lot of sex. But behind the scenes, there's a new crew member called an intimacy coordinator who's there to provide physical, social, and professional protection to everyone involved in a sex scene on set. According to Rolling Stone, showrunner David Simon said that he would never work without an intimacy coordinator again because it's been so effective. So HBO has now adopted a policy whereby all of its shows and movies with intimate scenes will be staffed with an intimacy coordinator. It's interesting to learn about what exactly they do, everything from facilitating conversations about the scenes to helping choreograph things that look real but are actually more comfortable for the actors. We've gotten some questions on the site and show before about how to direct intimate scenes, and the woman HBO hired actually started a nonprofit called Intimacy Directors International to help connect filmmakers to people like her. So it might be worth looking into if you are planning some hot and heavy stuff in your next film. I wonder if she's like a mediator in a sense, you know, of like starting that conversation and discussion. How do you get that job? Is what I like, how do you get into that? Um, this Rolling Stone story gets into her personal history. Basically, she was a stunt coordinator before, oh, right. uh, and then uh. she realized that there were all the that that sex scenes were not treated the same way that action scenes were, but that they kind of should be. Mm-hmm. Like they still require physicality and you know, like uh, some sort of coordination. But instead, the 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 mo like the general practice had been just like the director saying like go as far as you want you know yeah. that you feel comfortable and then people sort of felt like they should go maybe a little further than they felt comfortable so this is trying to um you know mitigate some of that while still keeping the sort of fresh sexy you know intimacy like it's not trying to stamp the sexiness out of sex scenes it's actually i think ultimately what the reason that that um, David Simon and others at HBO felt like it was so important is because in, in a way it makes the sex scenes feel more intimate because the actors are actually more comfortable. And now for some tech and gear news, here's Charles Hayne. Hello everybody, here with tech news, Charles Hayne. So first up in tech news, we actually have three recent rumors that we wanted to talk about on the podcast. We don't cover a lot of rumor stuff because rumors tend to be all over the map, but there's been a whole lot of rumors lately, enough to talk about. First off, the next C300 is rumored to be 8K. Secondly, like if you guys remember, it was just in August where Canon released their EOS R, their full frame mirrorless. And rumors are that by January, we're already going to have a revision of that, like a high resolution version. And then the last rumor is that Sony is going to have really soon an 8K full frame camera that does 8K 60 frames per second. 
And that's the rumor I want to talk about the most. The canon rumors are interesting, but they're sort of inevitable, natural evolutions. I mean, the EOS R1 is kind of a bummer because it's so soon after the original release. And, like, I personally like a regular release schedule. I always get bummed when improvements come out too fast because I know the pain of, like, you just waited forever to upgrade and you finally upgrade and then a new thing comes out, like, three months later and you're like, ah. Because we like to have the feeling of having the newest stuff for a little while. I get that. But this Sony rumor is really fascinating because Sony, I mean, we have to give Sony credit. They have really created the full-frame mirrorless market. And with the A7 cameras, they were years ahead of everybody else like Nikon and Canon. Now that Canon and Nikon have moved in on their space, Sony has to do something to hold on to prominence here. And so I think the smart move is 8K. 8K 60 frames per second is a really marquee feature that I think is going to entice a lot of filmmakers back since Sony's A7 line is obviously an order of magnitude cheaper than, say, the RED cameras that also offer 8K. What I'm curious about, because one of the things that Sony's always been so good for is low light sensitivity. That's one of the reasons they went full frame to begin with. But as you go to higher resolution, the individual photo sites have to get smaller, which often make them less sensitive in low light. So it's going to be really fascinating if Sony can deliver their like really marquee low light image reproduction with an 8K sensor. What's also particularly fascinating is that they're going to offer 12-bit capture at 4K. So Sony is really understanding the extent to which filmmakers and users want those higher bit depths want that, like, better image resolution. So it's going to be very fascinating to see when this hits the streets. Hopefully this will be next year. Maybe this will even be the A7S three. A lot of the criticism you hear of 8K is that you're going to need really amazing lenses and really amazing autofocus to make it work. But if there's one thing Sony have also done a lot of work on lately, it's really amazing lenses, and particularly with, like, the Alpha 9, really phenomenal autofocus. So if we're seeing like a really high resolution sensor kicking out that 8K 60 frames with the amazing Sony autofocus, we could have a real contender, a real counter argument from Sony to Canon and Nikon moving into their full frame mirrorless turf. Next up, we had a really great breakdown on all of the options now for distributing your project on the blockchain, which is interesting because it's one of those technologies that isn't necessarily about the normal stuff we cover here, like codecs and resolutions and sharpness. Nobody is releasing their project on the blockchain the way that you might on like a torrent platform, right? Torrent platforms, which are often used for pirating, are also often used for distributed releases of something. They allow peer-to-peer direct connections. Blockchain doesn't allow for that. Blockchain isn't going to change the image quality of your picture and release. What blockchain release platforms are all about is they're all about tracking views accurately for the good or correct distribution of the waterfall to the people who financed it and the people who produced it. Now, a lot of these blockchain platforms I actually think are a little – are currently overstating what they offer. Uh, You see in a lot of the platforms, it's going to make accounting easier than ever and – Yes, one aspect of the accounting is going to be easier than ever. It is going to be publicly recorded because that's what the blockchain is. It is a public record. Everyone who runs the software that supports any kind of blockchain all keep copies of identical records. And you know no individual is changing it because the whole point of a blockchain is it's getting checked against everyone else's record. So an individual can't change their 
record because then it'll no longer line up with everybody else's. It's the beauty of blockchain technology. But that's only one of the areas that was problematic in Hollywood accounting. Hollywood accounting is problematic for so many other ways. So blockchain is going to give you an accurate reproduction of the number of views that your project gets. And that's really exciting. And it's going to be public data. But you're still going to run into situations where your distributor is going to be able to say, oh, hey, actually, we paid for these posters. We paid for this promotion. We paid for these things. And that's always the place where people always have struggled with, you know, traditional quote unquote Hollywood accounting is like, at what point are you marketing the movie? At what point are you marketing the IP? At what point are you marketing the home video release? Which of these marketings counts against which of these budgets, that's where it gets all complicated in terms of breaking out gross profits or net profits. I mean, net profits don't exist to people who get money in the waterfall. That's the complication. I think it's exciting that we're going to see blockchain distribution platforms. I think that's really cool to have that kind of public record for things like view counts and screenings and that kind of thing. But I'm not 100% convinced yet that blockchain is going to solve all of those accounting issues because the accounting issues aren't the raw keeping track of things. It's what categories you put things into. I mean, it's the problem we all have with accounting, right? It's like, is this a business expense or a personal expense? Like taking the time to think about what account something should count against or splitting it properly. That's always the trick with these things. And it's going to be interesting to see how that happens. I am open to the possibility that blockchain might help some with that as well. But I, I'm not 100% excited that blockchain is going to solve all of the issues in distribution accounting. But check out the breakdown from all of your options for blockchain distribution and promotion uh, written by Oakley. Our question this week is another one that comes up in my personal life all the time. And Bogdan Bontas asks, what editor should I use on my old MacBook? I have an old MacBook that runs okay, but it started having trouble with video editing. It used to be fine, but now I have a Sony A7, and it barely works with the AVC HD files. Is my laptop to blame, or is it Resolve's fault? So I'll say this to begin with. DaVinci Resolve is power-hungry. If you are thinking about anything with Resolve, you want a powerful machine, you want a GPU, I always tell people, get the 15-inch MacBook Pro. Because it has dual graphics cards, and you want that extra graphics horsepower, right? I'm actually about to test whether or not you can really run Resolve on the Mac Mini. And I don't think you can run Resolve on the Mac Mini because you really need that GPU power unless you use an external GPU. And you specifically said not only do you have an older MacBook Pro, which is fine. I mean, I have a 2013 MacBook Pro. I can still edit and Resolve on it. But you have a 13-inch, which has less graphics power. So that is one thing. But you can usually get away with Resolve if your media is in the right format. It's really important to understand that there's a distinction between a capture format and an intermediate format. So... All of our cameras these days shoot to some sort of capture format, which is designed to get the most image quality into a format that can be written to a card as quickly as possible. AVCHD, as you mentioned from your Sony cameras, uh, Red Raw. Formats like this are wonderful formats, but they don't always play well with our computer. A computer really likes an intermediate format, specifically one that is intra-frame meaning all of the encoding is referring to one frame at a time. So each frame is drawn individually. So if you want to bring that frame up into memory, you just have to bring up that one frame. Whereas a lot of those capture codecs are inter-frame, which means they take a group of frames and they compress them together. 
which means to draw each frame, the computer has to look at all of the frames around it to figure out how to draw it. That's more processor intensive, and that can really slow your processing down. So what I always recommend when you're working on an older platform is find a way to transcode to a codec that is inter-frame compressed and specifically designed for intermediate workflows. Apple has ProRes. Avid has DNX. GoPro has Cineform, but Cineform also sort of works as like a platform agnostic. And I would really recommend transcoding all of your media to that, and I think you'll have a much easier time editing on your older laptop with these codecs that are designed to be lightweight, much more robust codecs that are going to really survive better. You might still discover that Resolve is requiring too much because the interesting thing about Resolve is Resolve is always processing your image. There's always the blowing up into Resolve's color space you have to deal with. Premiere, the old Final Cut 7, they're just linking programs. They're just pointing at the media and then playing the media as it stands. So they're lighter weight and easier to use, but they don't use as much of your system resources. So when you have a more powerful system, they don't take nearly as much advantage of it. Final Cut 7 would never use more than 4 gigs of RAM. Uh, so it's one of those things that I think you should try an intermediate codec first and keep working with Resolve. Re Resolve has worked very hard to make performance increase with intermediate codecs. You could also try Resolve as an optimized media workflow that you can experiment with. You can read about that in their manual. But if that doesn't work out for you, you might want to try a lighter weight program and see if that works a little bit better. All right. Good luck. And for some movie openings this week, the latest from prolific documentarian Maxim Pozdrovkin hit HBO this week. Only a few months after his fake news documentary, Our New President, premiered at Sundance, where I interviewed him, his new film, The Truth About Killer Robots, made its debut at TIFF. You gotta love a press release that begins, narrated by Komodo Roid, a lifelike Japanese android... Hmm. Right? <laughs> so what Komodoroid narrates is an exploration of the growing use of robotics in manufacturing, the service industry, and life-and-death policing matters. The film visits Germany, China, Japan, and the U.S. to gain insights into the ways robots are impacting jobs and more across cultures. So this filmmaker, Maxim, um, approaches his work with an academic rigor, but also like an edgy sensibility. So I'm really looking forward to this very timely doc. And I think Emily Booter actually interviewed him so we'll have that up on the site shortly sure. she either interviewed the director or the robot i don't recall but uh <laughs> one of them has definitely spoken on behalf of the movie and premiering on amazon prime instant on december 1st which is saturday is all the president's men well, one of the late great william goldman's greatest works is available for streaming this weekend robert redford and dustin hoffman play the washington post reporters bob woodward and carl bernstein who uncover the details of the Watergate scandal that leads to President Richard Nixon's resignation. And, of course, they're actually still pretty active. And uh, I know uh, is it Bernstein is still writing many yeah, books. Yeah, he just wrote a book about the Trump, uh, Trump right? presidency. Yeah, I think he's written about the past eight presidencies or something uh -huh. like that. Uh, the film won four Oscars, one of which went to Goldman for Adapted Screenplay, the others for Best Supporting Actor, Jason Robards, Best Sound, and Best Art Direction. And you can actually read our tribute to William Goldman on the site. 
And yeah, all the presidents men is. I feel like every generation says it's more relevant now than ever before. I know it's but, very uh, relevant. It definitely feels very relevant now. So definitely check that out. Who did Jason Robards play in that? Do you know? He was. He works as like a reporter in the newsroom. Huh. Uh, he's not. I used to think before I knew who Jason Robards really was. I thought it was he was Deep Throat, but that's Hal Holbrook. Okay. Uh, so he's like the main like boss of the Washington Post okay. in the newsroom. Interesting. Kind of older man. Interesting that he won an Oscar and Hoffman and Redford didn't win anything. Yeah, for that movie, yeah. And also coming out on Amazon Prime Instant on December 1st is The Game. We've had a few articles on David Fincher on the site as of late, so I thought it'd be a good time to single this one out because I don't think it often gets a lot of attention, um, at least not the same amount of attention that his other films get. It is his follow-up to Seven, and it stars Michael Douglas as a wealthy banker who is given an opportunity to participate in a mysterious game. His life is turned upside down when he becomes unable to distinguish between the game and reality. It also stars Sean Penn and Deborah Unger. One article that I wrote last week about Fincher is called How David Fincher Got His Start as a Filmmaker, and it's a nice little video essay by our friends at Film Radar. And I had no idea that David Fincher grew up in Marin County. Wow. Yeah, he grew up in Marin County, which is where Emily and I are both from, and he got his start working for, like, ILM and, like, the American Zoetrope people, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, and this movie's on the Criterion Collection, so uh, if you if you want to get a little free Criterion action, watch it on Amazon Prime this week. I don't know about that ending, but we won't talk about the ending. I haven't seen it in so long it's that a, I'm definitely going There's a twist. Gonna... Okay. Oh, yeah. I'd love to see like a cool infographic of all the you know people in the film industry that sort of came through ILM and Zoetrope. I saw one about like the Judd Apatow family of you know oh, branches, like, and it was really in- incredible. You should read uh, George Lucas's or a book that Brian, I think his name is Brian J. Jones. He wrote a biography about George Lucas uh, called George Lucas: A Life. Um, I read it earlier this year, and it really it goes way into detail about like Zoetrope and ILM and how you know they were so intimately connected because Lucas uh, started Zoetrope with Coppola, so um, in San Francisco, they wanted to build like a utopia essentially. Um, That's very San Francisco. Yeah, it didn't work out <laughs> quite as well as they hoped, but um, it's a very interesting read to hear about how they disrupted the film industry at that time. Highly recommend it. And coming to Netflix on December 2nd is The Lobster. And I'm just going to preface this one by saying, if you haven't listened to my interview with Yorgit, I like calling him in Yorgit. Yorgit. Yorgit Lanthimos. Mm, I prefer yogurt. Yogurt? Yor- oh, I like it. It's, it's Yorgos. But, uh, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, maybe there's a different pronunciation that I'm not aware of. Yorgit. Nope, it's Yorgos. It's <laughs> Susan Yorgit? <laughs> you're getting late for this. It's actually I was in the That's IFP such an inside joke in the IFP uh, live stream. I noticed that Cynthia Nixon kind of stumbled a bit on on uh, his name. Oof. I think I think she was confused because earlier in the night um, they gave a special Made in New York award to Andrew Cuomo's partner, his lover. Okay, because uh, she was involved in the documentary. <laughs> uh, and so she had a Made in New York award. So I think Cynthia Nixon may have spotted her in the crowd and got distracted by seeing Cuomo's oh, lover. I see. And she just got all flustered. And Wait, why? Of... Is her name something like Yorgos Lanthimos? No, and, she's uh, just a politician. Just a... Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, that's got, got absolutely trounced by Cuomo. <laughs> so she saw that competition and she just couldn't focus on yogurt. Anyways, 
Back to The Lobster and my podcast that came out with Yorgos Lanthimos on Monday. If you haven't listened to it yet, check it out. It's uh, pretty good. I, I think like it turned out very well, um, especially if you're interested in surreal filmmaking. He gives a lot of background into his philosophy behind it and sort of like how you can make a surreal film without coming off across as like inauthentic. Um, so definitely give it a give it a listen. As someone who's very interested in surreal film, uh, it was nice to talk to him and also to get some of my own sentiments reaffirmed about the way surreal film should be made, and I'm sure that you will get some of those takeaways too. Uh, that's called Yorgos Lanthimos on how to shoot surrealist film, and I'll link to it in the podcast post. But back to The Lobster, this was the film that I think really cemented his place on the independent film scene. Dogtooth was a launching point, sure, but this is his first English-language film, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and it was the one that really caught people's attention uh, on the festival circuit, I'd say. The film centers around a dystopian near future where single people are taken to the hotel where they are obliged to find a romantic partner in 45 days or are transformed into animals uh, of their cho- choosing and sent off into the woods to be hunted or just to... Well, remember the brother is a dog, remember? Yeah. He's oh, yeah, that's like, true. kind of living with him yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So. Um, it stars frequent Lanthimos collaborators, Rachel Weiss, who is in uh, The Favorite, and Colin Farrell, who was in Killing of a Sacred Deer, as well as John C. Riley, Leah Sadu, and Ben Wishaw. And finally, I don't use the word rollicking very often, but it's a good fit for the documentary United Skates that's coming to uh, to New York and L.A. theaters on Friday. This film by my fellow film fatals Diana Winkler and Tina Brown and executive produced by my good friend John Legend. (laughs) (laughs) Very good friend John Legend. Covers the multi-generational African-American roller skating scene across the U.S. But it's really so much more. It finds its emotional core in the stories of the longtime skaters and rink owners who are trying to keep the waning subculture alive. And it also manages to provide cultural gravitas to the mere act of roller skating by placing it in historic context of the civil rights movement and hip hop history. There's all these amazing kind of archival clips of people like Queen Latifah performing at roller rinks back in the day when hip hop wasn't considered acceptable for mainstream clubs. Um, it's sort of fun and serious at the same time, which make it an overall great watch. Highly recommended. I interviewed the co-directors back at Tribeca, and they go into detail about the multi-year journey to completing the project and whittling down their 500 hours of footage. Do you know if you switch the F and the N in Queen Latifah, you get Queef Latina? <laughs> <laughs> I just wow, realized I'm that. I'm very disappointed that <laughs> I never came up with it. that myself. <laughs> that is true. This is what happens in my brain when Liz is talking. <laughs> Queefs and Latinas. And... I saw Queen Latifah at South by Southwest a couple years ago, and I was so, so starstruck. Yeah, what a what a presence. It was cool. And then Micah, who was with us on the ground, didn't know who she was, and it made what? me feel very old. Like he never had heard of Queen Latifah? Yeah, he was like, who? Wow. I was she so had... excited. I was like, oh, my God, how Queen Latifah. How old is he, 10? Yeah, she had <laughs> such a mo- like a moment, I feel like, when yeah. we when I was growing up. What, yeah. what was she in? First she was like Chicago. Yes, Chicago. That was bringing the down the house with yep, Steve Yeah, bringing down the house. And then like it had like a whole stream of rom-coms and stuff. Man, bringing down the house. I never how would that it. How would that movie play Not, to yeah, exactly. today? It's, it's a little on PC, especially yeah. now. It wouldn't oh, get was it like today. about an interracial couple? No, it's basically <sighs> just like Steve Martin in blackface without oh. like being in blackface. Yikes. Is that a, is that a fair? Well, I think like Queen Latifah is like 
hip hop person and rugged and like she's his maid too if i remember oh god from the streets and steve martin's just like this buttoned up kind of guy that wants to get more hip and cool yeah and it's like yeah it's weird oh that sounds terrible it was back when eugene levy was like in everything wasn't he also in the jerk where he thinks he's black but he's white yes i mean well that's weird race thing going on that one is he's born he's born into a like african-american family family, he doesn't realize that he's a different color yeah it's a, it's it's, it's a, more it's a, PC. It's, yeah, it's wow. more of a satire. This is more just like okay. Yeah. Well, Queen Latifah has done a lot of great stuff too. That's true. And now she's funding a lot of female-fronted films, which is pretty great. Anyway, good film. There's only about ten <laughs> seconds of Queen Latifah. There's a lot of other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got some upcoming grant deadlines. Um, the Catapult Film Fund is due tomorrow. This is the final um, deadline for their 2018 year, and then they open up again in January. So they have rolling deadlines, but there's a month now where you can't apply. So if you, if for some reason you need the funds to come in 2018 for your fiscal sponsor tax purposes, you have to apply by November 30th. So this fund gives early support to propel projects forward that hold the promise of a story that should be uniquely told in film. It's, it's kind of a unique fund because it gives you that early money, which a lot of other funds don't do. So they provide development funding up to $20,000 to doc filmmakers who have a strong story to tell, have secured access, and are ready to create a fundraising piece to help unlock critical production funding. They seek to enable filmmakers to develop their projects to the next level at the early stage when funding is hard to find. And with the deadline on December 1st is the Pacific Pioneer Fund. This is for filmmakers based in California, Washington, or Oregon. And the grant offers from $1,000 to $10,000 to emerging documentarians. But they have kind of a unique definition of the term emerging documentary filmmaker. They define it as a person committed to the craft of making documentaries who has demonstrated that commitment by several years, but no more than 10 of practical film or video experience. So uh, it's more like a mid-career mid-career documentarian um, who has experience with video or practical, practical film. I don't know. And also with the deadline of December 1st is the ScreenCraft Film Fund, which is now accepting shorts, features, documentaries, and series. So if you've got a script or in early stages of production, you could score up to $30,000 in financing and production services. In partnership with Bondit Media Capital, a film and media fund based in Beverly Hills, ScreenCraft is offering two production grants per year to talented filmmakers for narrative features, short films, and TV pilot series scripts and documentaries that display originality, vision, and exceptional potential. Grant amounts will vary from $10,000 to $30,000 depending on the scale and merit of each project. This program includes creative development from the ScreenCraft team and production guidance and resources from Bondit Media Capital and Buffalo 8 Productions. And now onto festival deadlines. There's a pretty big one. The Palm Springs International Short Fest has its early bird deadline on December 3rd. It takes place in Palm Springs, California from June 18th to 24th, 2019. It's a seven-day competitive festival that screens approximately 330 films from 47 countries in a series of 90-minute programs. It's, I think, one of the biggest short film festivals in the world. Uh, In a step we've seen from many short fests of late, Palm Springs Short Fest no longer prioritizes premiere status when selecting films for competition, so you don't have to worry about that. And it's an Academy Award and BAFTA qualifying festival. The festival has 20 competitive categories with prize money, film stock, and production services valued over $70,000. 
Dang, I wonder how many films they have to screen to narrow it down to 330 shorts. Yeah, I don't know, but that's great. I, that's, that sounds like so much fun. The Bermuda International Film Festival has a deadline on December 15th. Keep going, John. We'll just do the soundtrack. It's the Bermuda Triangle Festival. If you can do it quieter, maybe I can. I'll do it. No? Keep going. This is the late deadline. It takes place in Bermuda from March 13th to the 17th, 2019. And who wouldn't want to go to Bermuda? The festival's coveted grand jury prize bestowed upon the festival's best narrative short film. Okay, cut it. <laughs> it's, it's too much. I can't, I can't focus. Well, we just want to get to the high part. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. I, you know, it was really nice. I just couldn't do it. I, <laughs> the uh, festival's coveted grand jury prize bestowed upon the festival's best narrative short film qualifies its winner for consideration by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences for short film live action. Since becoming a qualifying festival in 2004, two of their short award winners have gone on to win and a number of shorts that screening competition went on to receive Oscar nominations. In addition, the winning short will take home $1,000 cash. I don't know if I want to hold $1,000 in cash. but I, I, mean, I do. I, I'd accept it. That's like I'd 10 bills. I'd like to know. Oh, what yeah, you're right. I guess it is only $1,000 bills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it were ones, that might be tricky. <laughs> That's what I'd want, though. I'd want like a Singles. suitcase full of ones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Dockville International Documentary Film Festival has a deadline of December 15th. This one takes place March 27th to April 4th, 2019 in Leuven, Belgium. Dockville, the largest documentary film festival in Belgium, <laughs> I'm sure there are lots to compare it to, has a strong focus on author-driven documentary with special emphasis on the cinematic experience in general and cinematography in particular, which is a nice focus, an unusual focus for a doc festival. For eight days, the festival organizes masterclasses, seminars, master talks uh, alongside its screenings. Invited guests are welcome to bathe in chocolate and join their renowned festival kitchen and bar. The ideal place to meet professionals in an informal setting. Oh, sounds great. I made up the chocolate part, you but... You needed a kitchen. I feel like Belgium, <laughs> you, like it's gotta be... You came after Belgium pretty hard there, though. <laughs> I, I freaking love french fries and chocolate. This is going to be a delicious Belgium's festival. Belgium's got a, a pretty nice film scene, I think. Like, I've, I was looking at uh, some international festivals to submit to, and it seems like they've got some cool stuff there. Yeah, I can't think of one Belgian director. I'm sure there are, just it's not coming to mind. Well, uh, Chantel, French, Chantel German... Ackerman? Is she Belgian? She might be. Uh, I feel like she's Danish. I don't mm. know. Either way, good food in Denmark, too. Um, Dockville is an Academy Award qualifying festival. Mm. Yep. And now, out of the kitchen we go for this week's weekly words of wisdom. Wow. Well, that was exciting. So <laughs> this week I spoke with uh, director James Ivory, uh, who has made many, you know, big historical period piece costume dramas, if you will, like The Remains of the Day, Howard's End, A Room with a View. Oh, and that's he, a big interview. Yeah, it was very cool. And I, I, I called him personally. And he actually, the first time ever he I've had this, he couldn't remember a director's name during the interview. So he called me back and left a voicemail. Wow. He said, hi, Eric, this is Jim Ivory. I'm going to save that voice for the rest of my life. Wow. Uh, he so also, what else did Jim have to say? Well, uh, it was the day after Thanksgiving, so we said hi. And so I, I had asked <laughs> him, uh, the, his film The Bostonians, which was from 1984, is based on a Henry James novel and is premiering in a new 4K restoration beginning in New York this Friday and then throughout the country. So I had asked 
what advice he would have for adapting a famous piece of work into a feature film. Uh, of course, he also just won an Oscar for writing Call Me By Your Name. And in what are the keys to honoring the original source material? And James Ivory said, well, I think you have to respect it. You may change the story elements, add or take away characters, cut or add scenes, all those kinds of things. But you have to be true to the point of view and tone of the author. Otherwise, why do it? There's no point in doing it if you're going to scrap everything and not be faithful. Writers have a particular tone of voice. You have to discover what that is and find a digital equivalent to that tone of voice. That has to be there. The original author's presence has to be there somehow. And here's the thing. If they make a million changes, the tone of voice has got to be that of the author. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it. You might as well just go get some other book. Uh, which I, I thought was interesting because I could see a lot of people disagreeing with this and thinking that you should make it your own and should adapt it to your own voice and tone. And it's just interesting to see someone who is famous for making a lot of literary adaptations kind of say, no, I, you know, I'm still the director and often a writer, but I still think the number one key is to honor the voice and source material of the original uh, art, which I don't know. I, I could see this being in a weird way a little controversial because I think sometimes it's like we went so far away from the original source material, made it our own, and people get praised for that as well, filmmakers. Uh, so it's just interesting to see. No, stick to what made it work and tick in the first place and you'll have success. That seems like a very respectful approach, Jim. Ivory. Mm. And finally, in shout outs, Variety has named its 10 directors to watch for 2019. And our hometown guy, Kent Jones, made the cut. He's a director of the New York Film Festival here. So I always like to see when people who've done a lot to help other filmmakers get acclaim for their own work. His feature debut, Diane, premiered and won Tribeca Film Festival this year, where Emily interviewed him. And we will link to that uh, interview in the podcast post. Congratulations, Kent, and the rest of the list of relative unknowns like uh, Bradley Cooper. I think it's Bradley Cooper. Is uh, a new oh, upcoming French. French filmmaker. Oh, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Got it. Got it. I mixed him up with some other guy. If you um, switched the letters <laughs> in Bradley Cooper's Cr- name, so Bradley Booper? Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Oh. And if you added a P it'd be Bradley Pooper. <laughs> A Star is Born, cra- <laughs> directed by Cradley Booper. In, in Gady La- Laga. What? No, that doesn't uh, work as well. No, uh, no. Gady Lala. Lala? Yeah. Gigi Lala. Gigi. That sounds like uh, someone you play Mahjong with. I'm meeting up with Gigi for a Mahjong uh, game. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for the uh, week. <laughs> Anything else you got to say? I don't know. Fun Jusco. <laughs> <laughs> fun Jusco. Uh, um, Laracurus. Oh, man. <laughs> Thanks Eric. for listening uh, to this week's <laughs> show. Uh, thank you to Audition and Adobe for making such smart projects that, you know, having a blackout right in the middle of the podcast, you saved our recording and we didn't have to start over. By that, we mean we all blacked out because it's a rough <laughs> night. That was very, we had a very scary moment during the recording of this podcast, and I think we're all a little bit relieved. It's all good. Yes. And please stay in touch with us. Uh, I'm on Twitter at LizFilm. I'm at Eric Lures. And Eric with a K. Oh, whoa. <laughs> That's, a new That's one. true. I never actually did. I guess I should specify. It's That's, with a K. That could work as a new Jim John Jim thing. That's what I'm, I'm trying. Okay. I like that. Eric with a K. So Eric Lures. 
Eric with a K. Yeah, great. And I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. You can read all about the uh, everything you heard in this podcast and more at No Film School. Um, we'll have a post associated with this podcast with a bunch of articles in it uh, that we talked about. So go check that out. And until Monday, oh, Monday's podcast. And on Monday, I'll be releasing a podcast I did with Christina Gallego, who is the one of the directors of a great film I saw at TIFF. Uh, that I'm really excited about called Birds of Passage. Uh, if you've seen Embrace of the Serpent, it is, uh, I guess, Uruguero's next film that's coming out in February. Um, he directed it with Christina Gallego, who is his partner, so it was a co-directing sort of uh, experience, and it's awesome. I, I would uh, liken it to a sort of mixture of 100 Days of Solitude and The Godfather. Um, it's Whoa. sort of this, like magical realism uh that is very um colombian in nature so like it's it's told from the perspective of a indigenous colombian person which is a perspective that we don't get very often with those stories like narcos and you know scarface or all those like drug trafficking uh um movies from retellings of the 70s and 80s so it's kind of special in that way and uh i'll have that podcast out on monday so be sure to listen to it uh okay sounds awesome great thanks guys see you next week